We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. My witness today is Terry Gaspard, who is a family therapist, social worker, and author of Daughters of Divorce, which she wrote with her daughter, and The Remarriage Manual, How to Make Everything Work Better the Second Time Around. One of the experts she quotes is someone called Andrew G. Marshall. Our topic is the long-term impact of divorce, how to own up to how it has affected you, deal with the unprocessed pain, and have a better relationship today. What I really like about Terry's work is she does not just diagnose problems, but provides tools for a successful relationship. And she's walked this path herself. Her parents divorced when she was 10. She was brought up in a blended family and she has divorced herself. The good news is she's been happily married since 1997. Welcome to The Meaningful Life, Terry. Thank you, Andrew. When I talk about your biography or your personal background, it's sort of not a really a big surprise you became a family therapist, is it? Not at all. Growing up in a large blended family, I was always an observer of human behavior and tried to think of ways to make life better for myself and my sisters. I guess you could say I was a caretaker. And that is perhaps one of the legacies of all of this is that you've become a caretaker. Yes. In what way was that a problem for you? Well, I think at times I took on too much responsibility and didn't really understand the importance of boundaries. So I wanted to help my sisters. I wanted to help my mom and later my stepmother. And so I always worked overtime, I guess you could say, and I still have a tendency to do that. I take on a lot of different projects, but with writing my books and blogging and art and writing articles for my audience and being a therapist, I truly have found my niche and have been able to also learn the importance of self-care. It's incredibly important, isn't it? When people ask me why I became a therapist, although my parents didn't divorce, my mother's sister married my father's brother. So normally when a family splits up, what happens is, you know, you stay with your half of the relationship effectively, but we were doubly in this. And so I saw on a very close up just the impact of divorce. And so Although we've had very different experiences of divorce, we're both sitting here today because of what happened to us 50 plus years ago. Help me explain to people why what happened so long ago still has an impact today. Because people say to me in my office, oh, that happened you know, when I was a kid. That was so long ago. Why does it still impact on you and I today and them today? What happened when we were small? Well, I think there's something called, I've researched the idea of the sleeper effect, which was written about by the famous writer and therapist Judith Wallerstein, who has now passed away. But that's a delayed reaction that we tend to have to events that are emotionally arousing, triggering. And in my case, you know, when my parents divorced, it wasn't that uncommon for families to go through that in the state of California. Actually, I'm from Los Angeles. It was becoming quite popular in the 1960s and 70s. So I thought, well, this is just the way life is, you know, kids go through these things. 
but no one really talked much about it or encouraged my sisters and I to go for counseling. So it wasn't until I was in college, Andrew, that I started noticing some of the effects that my parents' divorce had on me in terms of my view of love, intimacy, commitment. So I struggled, went for counseling and decided I really enjoyed counseling. I thought it was a good fit for me. I'd already chosen psychology as a major. And then going to my first marriage was really kind of blindsided by the fact that some of my ghosts from the past, as I discussed in my first book, Daughters of Divorce, were playing themselves out in unusual ways. I hadn't really dealt with some of the aftermath of my parents' constant conflict before the marriage, after the divorce, some of the issues that were going on in my family. And once I started doing more writing and thinking about it, I realized that awareness is really key and being able to have the courage to face your own baggage, your emotional vulnerabilities, and then see how they play themselves out in relationships rather than blaming the other person, at least owning your own issues. Certainly picking a partner who's a good match for you is important in the time to do that, which we didn't often do when I was young, we kind of rushed into uh, making a commitment without really considering what our needs were for chemistry and compatibility. But that's how it all sort of seems to play out in a lot of adult children of divorce. We kind of gradually learn about ourselves as we go through relationships. So what sort of messages do you think you get as a daughter of divorce about relationships? Well, one message I got, which I think in my 320 interviews for my book that I found was pretty poignant and common is that you can't really trust men, that men are unreliable, they're inconsistent. So all you really have to go by is your own needs and yourself. And when those needs aren't being met in a relationship, It's probably best to bail out pretty quickly rather than hang in there for the long run. So the pattern that I saw with my mother and my sisters, who, by the way, have all been divorced, one's happily remarried like I am, is that you can't trust men and relationships are not going to meet all of your needs. So it's very painful and hurtful to be in toxic relationships. So the way you can protect yourself is by ending things rather quickly, bailing out. So that was my pattern. I used to follow in my mother's footsteps a lot, and she actually left my father sort of in relationships. My first marriage lasted 17 years, so I gave it a good try. But I think I definitely lacked the skills to manage and deal with conflict because I didn't see my parents do that. I didn't see my dad and my stepmother do that too well. So I didn't really understand the importance of taking breaks, realizing when you're flooded and you need to ask for what you want in very specific, non-blameful ways. All the skills that so many people are now aware of and hopefully get help for in counseling, I didn't understand the importance of knowledge. Did you try and swallow conflict? Because if you find conflict difficult, you sort of avoid it. You tiptoe around and you don't actually say what you really want. Were you an avoider of conflict? Exactly. I was a bit of a withdrawer in the sense that I would avoid dealing with intense emotions and a people pleaser. So a caretaker, people pleaser, those, you know, variables kind of go together, Andrew. And so what happens when you sweep things under the rug a lot, as you know, is that those issues cause resentment. So before you know it, you're not happy. You criticize, find fault with your partner and life becomes 
more of a struggle. And so what I've learned and been able to teach my clients and people that I reach in my articles and books is become more aware that conflict isn't a bad thing. Conflict is how we learn. Conflict is good for us. I mean, my most successful book is I Love You, But I'm Not In Love With You. And there is only one message that I'm trying to get over to people in this book, which is it's okay to argue. In fact, actually, it can be a sign of love that you actually trust somebody enough to have an argument with them. And I sort of give this message over and over again. And it's amazing how many people actually completely miss that because they don't want to hear that. And they Mm -hmm. think the way to get back in love again is to do nice things to each other, which doesn't harm. But if you're not actually able to get the conflict out, you're not able to actually find out what the real problems are. You're not able to stop suppressing all your feelings. Conflict is the most important thing for relationships. And if you haven't learned anything about conflict, you really do have a big problem. So give me your three top tips on dealing with conflict. Well, the first one is realizing that not all conflict is going to be resolved. So just accept that fact, but that the first step is to try to get in touch with your own needs, your own feelings, and some of your cognitive distortions that you have, like taking things personally or catastrophizing, that kind of thing. Put your needs out there next in a very specific way. So rather than throwing in the kitchen sink and, you know, stockpiling all these resentments, state very simply using iMessages. I would really appreciate it if you text me and let me know when you're running more than a half an hour late so I wouldn't worry. You know, that triggers my own fears and anxieties. So when you make a specific request, you put it out there in a non-blameful way, you're much more likely, hopefully, to get the kind of response you're looking for. And then spend more time listening to your partner than talking. Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) We're also worried about getting our point across. I love that message on the internet, which I see often, which is, are you more interested in being right or are you interested in being happy? I think I would add a a tip to that is actually summarize back what you heard, because it's very easy to sort of put it through your own sieve. And they say, I did phone you. And you hear, I never phoned you. And suddenly you're going down a rabbit hole when actually it's really good to check back what you've heard. Because if your partner feels heard, they're stress levels are going to come down. And actually slowing down the communication really helps. But unfortunately, because we are frightened and we're anxious, we want to get over and done with as quickly as possible. And what does that do, Terry? <laughs> leads to an escalation of conflict. Taking those deep breaths, one of my other points to add to the wonderful points you said is acknowledge the fact that if you're feeling flooded, you may not be able to finish the discussion right then. It's perfectly fine. In fact, really, really a great thing to be able to say, you know, I'm I'm not in the best state of mind right now, but can we talk again over dinner or can we finish this conversation tomorrow? As long as you don't let it go for more than two to three days, I think you'll be in pretty good shape. But for instance, if you had a a recent death in the family or one of your kids is sick or you're dealing with your own stress, you are wise to acknowledge that and say, I hear what you're saying. It's important that we talk about this, but this just isn't a good time. I think I love your phrase, I'm feeling flooded, because I think we can all relate to that. 
I don't feel when you say I'm feeling flooded that I've flooded you. I feel I understand where you are. And, you know, when you're flooded, you've got to bail out. So you haven't got any time to listen to me. But maybe once you've bailed out, we can actually talk about this. So I love that phrase, I'm flooded. What was it like actually researching this book with your daughter? Well, it was fascinating because she was going through some struggles in her own relationships in her early 20s. And it really started over a cup of coffee where we started sort of going through my divorce and the effect on her and how she really was able to identify trust issues, fear of commitment, some self-esteem issues that she was going through. And so we outlined the chapters for the book during several conversations. And then we decided to interview other women, college students primarily, my own students at a community college, to figure out were these trends, were these, you know, variables common among daughters of divorce. And it was a fascinating journey that took us about four years of face-to-face interviews of these women where we were able to categorize some of their main themes into the topics that we um, have for the chapters in the book. And then I was able to actually have a conversation with Judith Wallerstein. And she was the only divorce researcher that had ever spoken about daughters of divorce having unique characteristics. And she strongly supported my research. My research was also based on some valid and reliable research I had done in the 1990s and had been published in the Journal of Divorce and Remarriage, which showed distinct differences between men and women raised in divorced families. So there was enough evidence for me to get the book published. My following still is really huge. I still do a lot of coaching for Daughters of Divorce, and a lot of them come with their partners, and we do video sessions. So it's fascinating that girls have often misunderstood the effect that their parents' divorce has on them. They tend to blame themselves. They tend to take it personally and often repeat the pattern. While all children of divorce in adulthood have twice or double the risk of divorce themselves compared to adults raised in intact homes. Daughters of divorce are even more at risk because of some of the behavior patterns they observed primarily from their mother, like I spoke about with my own situation. And they tend to identify with their mother. And if they marry young, or don't know themselves very well, they're actually repeating the legacy of divorce in their own life. And it's quite interesting to hear their stories when you interview them and to see how it plays itself out. The Judith Wallerstein books are really excellent. It's all about the long-term impact of divorce. I think it was in the 60s or the 70s she started following people and I think did 25 or 30 years of research into the same people. There's a whole series of books. We'll put the details of those in the show notes of this, obviously, along with uh, Terry's also her book on this subject. What do you think is the difference then? So the girls feel very responsible. What is the impact on the boys? Well, divorce definitely impacts all children to a certain degree, depending on their resources and their stress. The famous researcher Paul Amato, who's Australian, actually is one of the most prolific writers in addition to Judith Wallerstein. And my study was based on his original study, which is about the resources and stressors model. So my study, which was called Towards a Resources and Stressors Model, the Psychological Adjustment of Adult Children of Divorce, 
basically found that boys have a way of being able to put the divorce behind them after the first couple of years, usually. They don't have a tendency to take on so much of the baggage of their parents. They're not quite as much at risk for repeating the past. Certainly validating their feelings, their sense of loss, and trying to have them come up with a good custody schedule with both parents. Access to both parents is crucial for boys and girls. But for the daughter of divorce, because of the identification with the mother and the tendency that girls have to put more emphasis on being connected to others in relationships and looking for more emotional support, we do tend to take it a little more to heart and often, as you said earlier, don't really reach out, don't discuss it, kind of act like everything's going fine due to that sleeper effect. So some of our issues remain hidden and surface as we get into early adulthood. Yes, because what I see a lot with my clients and both men and women, because often the boys end up becoming the caretakers of their mothers, particularly mm-hmm. if, for example, there are two boys and you know one of them will take over that role of looking after their mother. They don't right. feel able to share their stuff because they want to be good boys and they want mm-hmm. to be good girls because there's more than enough trouble and crisis going on there. So there's actually no space for their own material exactly. at all. So it happens for boys and girls in some cases, but it's just a little more, it's more common for the daughter to feel that sense of of being burdened. Uh, Many families, including my own, there's more emphasis on the girl kind of taking care of the mother. Uh, Certainly if your parents are well-adjusted and your role models were that they got through the divorce healthier, they had good coping skills, you're not going to be as negatively impacted by it. Also, finances, feeling actually secure certainly helps. Did you hear any uncomfortable truths from your daughter through writing this book? She asked me a lot of questions, and she actually wanted to know why we gave up after 16 and a half years, because she thought maybe there was a chance that we could have worked things out. That reconciliation fantasy that children of divorce have is one that stays with a lot of children of divorce for many, many years. So we kind of put that one to rest. And I said that we had been to counseling, which I recommend for all couples considering divorce. And I said that some people I believe are happier living apart than together. I explained that we had given it a good try. Fortunately, she has a good relationship with her father and with me and with her stepmother and stepfather which was another variable I found out with my research, Andrew, step-parents can be a source of support if it's handled right. And so that's why I wrote my second book on the remarriage manual. So we, we, we visited all those issues. We talked about her step-parents. We talked about her own journey. She learned so much from doing the interviews with me and writing blogs that I, I believe it's really been a beneficial experience for her. It seems like this needs quite a lot of conversations with your children, that the temptation is to have the conversation when you tell them, and then after that you ask, how are they? And it sort of takes quite a long conversation to get down to this material. Am I hearing that correct? Yes. It's not just one conversation. It's being tuned into the fact that there are, throughout our lifespan, there are so many different situations that come up birthdays, graduations, weddings, that will trigger sometimes feelings of loss. 
the loss of the family that you thought you had, two parents together raising kids. And certainly having open access to both parents helps, but there are still so many different emotions that can arise. Be receptive, be open, certainly see if your child is at all interested in counseling, go for family counseling. As a family therapist, I, of course, recommend that the whole family be brought in when possible. And just be tuned into the fact that especially some younger children, of course, develop separation anxiety when they're taken from one of their parents at a young age, put in another home, moved around a lot. I mean, that can create some residual effects. So basically keep an open mind and try not to take it personally when your kids bring up negative emotions about your divorce. Because if they know that you're open to listening and validating their feelings, it's only going to strengthen your relationship. So how did you not get into that place when your daughter was saying all of the things where you got defensive? Even if you're a therapist, that's blooming difficult to do. People think that we've got it down off pat, but here's a little confession. We're human beings too. We mess up too. So how did you stop yourself from going to that place of, you know, I did my best, don't torture me with all of this stuff? Well, I realized that although I had done my best, I pretty much rushed into my second marriage because of my age and my desire to get remarried and many other factors. So I clearly apologize for the fact that even though it's been a good marriage, we're, we're happily married after 23 years, that did bother my daughter because she felt like she didn't have enough time alone with me. So I made a commitment to her when she was in her early 20s to always make time for those long walks. We still go pretty much most weekends for a two to three mile walk and, you know, apologize for my part in her distress. I just did my best to listen and realize that while I had never had that opportunity to have that conversation with my own mother, it was really important for her to deal with those negative emotions. And listening to the other women and their stories really helped too, because she realized she wasn't alone. And I realized I wasn't alone as a mother and trying not your best not to get defensive is really key. And it's very easy to suddenly go into that, oh, I'm the worst mother in the world defense. So I love those two tips. Number one, apologize. It makes a huge difference. If you apologize to your children, you would be amazed at the impact it has. I, you know, I get this over and over again and clients say to me, Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Of course I apologize. No, no, no problems. And they always come back just completely shocked of how much impact that has for their children. <laughs> it's okay to say that parents mess up. Yeah. And I like the second thing is what can I do to make it better? You know, the fact that you make extra time for your daughter is just absolutely wonderful. So, you know, that really shows you've listened, doesn't it? So I think those are two brilliant tips. If somebody listening to this is unfortunately going through a divorce, what advice would you give to them? Well, I would say self-care is really key, getting counseling for yourself. And if you have an online support group, because now a lot of people aren't meeting in person. Try to connect with other people, blogging, reading a lot of books to better understand the impact of your divorce on you and your family. And take responsibility for your part in it. Like in my case, I was young. I really didn't 
understand myself well enough to pick a partner who was a good match for me. And don't badmouth or blame your ex as much. Certainly, sometimes there are abusive situations, which are obviously very detrimental and harmful. But in a lot of cases, try to not see your divorce as a failure, but see it as the opportunity to learn about relationships and what makes them work. So having that view, okay, this didn't work. We're better off living apart, usually because of too much conflict, misunderstandings, too much resentment that's swept under the rug, as I said earlier. But how can we move forward and have hopefully a healthy relationship as a divorced family? I strongly believe, as Constance Ahrens, the famous researcher, said, we are all one family. We can be a new kind of family after divorce. And that requires us to step back, own our own responsibility, place less blame on our ex, and focus on what's in the best interest of our children. If we have children, which a lot of couples do, and what's in their best interest is for us to have a healthy lifestyle, exercise, good nutrition, social support, counseling, and, you know, not looking back too much, understand why the divorce happened, but try to come up with some steps to move forward and have stronger relationships with other adults, pick a partner who's a better match for you and focus on the needs of your kids, which I still spend a lot of time with my adult children and I enjoy it. When you come to picking another partner, the temptation is after the pain to try and get back up on the horse and start riding again. What do you think of that plan? Well, rebound relationships are at much higher risk for failure. Most people do want to find solace and sexual intimacy and emotional connection after divorce. And I think that's pretty normal. I would say if you're going to date right after a divorce, and I certainly did that, to try to keep the dating away from your kids, not introduce any of your partners to your children within, you know, the first several months of dating until you're pretty sure that that person's going to be a keeper. And have fun with dating. Look for someone who you have chemistry and emotional, sexual, intellectual compatibility with. Try to give it time if you can. Most people do get remarried the first four years after their divorce. So, you know, it's it's human nature uh, to want to recouple and form a new bond. So it, it doesn't have to be bad, but take your time and really assess what are your values? What do you want out of life? So you're not rushing into another committed relationship or marriage, which is doomed to failure because the divorce rate for second and third marriages is much higher than first marriages, which is why I wrote my second book, The Remarriage Manual. And we're going to talk about that at a moment. But I suppose I want to add my three penneth worth to that, that it's a very easy temptation to say, oh, I married the strong, silent type. I'm now going to go for somebody who's the complete opposite of that. And they're going to talk all the time to the point that, you know, I I end up becoming the strong, silent one. And we sort of think that that's different, but actually going for the opposite is just playing the same game, but taking a different role in it. 
when you look back, as I often have done, with people over a whole series of relationships, and they often go between, for example, having no chemistry with somebody, and then they have somebody, somebody they've got a huge amount of chemistry, but they burn each other up, then they go back to no chemistry, and then they go over to... And it's very easy to go for the opposite of what you've had, but you end up in the same game, but just playing it from a different point of view. Unless you do the work on yourself and you truly understand, there is a danger of actually having another go on the merry-go-round, effectively, the same merry-go-round. How did you find a different merry-go-round to go on to? Well, I definitely was looking for a partner who I had more in common with and what Dr. John Gottman calls shared meaning. Tell me about shared meaning. Shared meaning and purpose. What is your vision for your life in the future? For instance, I really value spending time outside the environment. A lot of my hobbies are things like kayaking, hiking, biking. And my ex-husband and I had completely different interests. So I found that most weekends I was either by myself or with my children without my former husband. Also, counseling and obviously supporting people through therapeutic means and working on your own issues is very important to me. And so family time, understanding yourself, outdoor activities, those are some things that were important to me. So looking for a partner who shared at least most of those interests, I was lucky enough to find someone who I have a lot in common with and I have good chemistry with. But it takes time sometimes and rushing into it isn't helpful, but just really determining what your deal breakers are, like what are some things that are really crucial for you in addition to everything that I spoke about. For myself, being a daughter of divorce, I value someone who's reliable, consistent, loyal, someone who I can count on. And I found that quality as well in my husband. So I'm very lucky with that. You know, he's he's a person that is trustworthy. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. So we have a lot in common. He believes in therapy. You know, we've been through counseling ourselves as a couple, which I strongly recommend. What's it like being a couple's counselor and then going with your partner? Excellent. We had many experiences where he didn't feel that comfortable with people that we uh, signed up for counseling with, but we found someone about five years ago who's a good match for us. She actually has a lot of experience with blended families, so that's good. We go once a month now for a tune-up, we call it, just to make sure that things are going to continue to go smoothly. It's been great because it helps us to work on some of the conflict resolution skills, which we sometimes get a little bit invested in. I'm right. I want to prove my point a little too much. And financial issues, different dreams we have for our future may differ a little bit. So it's overall been a really valuable experience. So what's your best advice if you are a remarried couple? Well, first of all, have realistic expectations and realize that love can be sweeter the second or third time around, but that doesn't mean you're going to be without challenges. Those challenges have to do with the fact that you're going to need tolerance for the fact that you're coming from two different worlds. Because Often when people get married the first time, they're in their 20s or in their early 30s. And the average age in my sample from my book for remarried couples was early 40s. So by that time, you have more of a chance to build up emotional baggage 
and vulnerabilities. So understand that that baggage is going to be triggered by situations that occur in the remarried family, such as stepchildren, exes, financial matters, and being patient with each other and have a lot of family meetings, which I talk about in the book, and go for counseling if you need it early on before things have a tendency to get much worse, and be able to have an open dialogue, which we talked about earlier, Andrew. If you feel rejected by your son or daughter because of a bitter divorce, what advice would you give on rebuilding that relationship? Well, I I think going for counseling together can be helpful if you feel like you need some support with that. Basically doing a lot of listening and validating their experience, trying your best not to get defensive. Because even if you didn't do anything on purpose to injure or harm that relationship, if your child or adult child feels hurt or resentment towards you, that is a valid feeling for them. And the worst thing you can do is try to talk them out of it or rationalize or justify your action. Listening, asking a lot of open-ended questions like, tell me more about why you feel that way. And make a commitment in addition to apologizing for any harm you did, whether it was intentional or not, make a commitment to do better. Like I said, with my own daughter, I made a promise to her and I spend a lot of time with her because she felt like she missed out on some of that as a result of me getting remarried and having another child. Uh, I gave birth to her little sister right afterwards. So she she loves her sister, but she feels like as a young teenager, she missed out on some of that quality time. It's worked magic for us. We get along really well, but I try really hard not to take things too personally and feel too wounded by the comments that my children make and just reflect more on myself and my part in it. In a moment, we're going to be looking at a specific letter and here's some more information about how you can get involved in the program. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. I do hope that you're going to become a supporter of the Meaningful Life program. At some of the higher levels of support, you can join our Heart Circle, where we're going to be explaining how to speak from the heart and how to listen from the heart. And those are two incredibly powerful skills. One of the other benefits is you can write a letter into us, and thank you for this letter. My husband recently had a mental nervous breakdown after 13 years of marriage. He ran around flirting with everyone. We argued constantly and he acted like a wild teenage boy. We moved house and he quickly returned back to 36 years old and I assumed it was some itch or midlife crisis. I never thought he would ever have cheated on me. Now I find out that he had an affair, but he claims he doesn't know any of her info, not even her last name. I feel as long as he's protecting her, we can't go forward in repairing the marriage. Am I wrong? I'm upset that he knows my brother died of AIDS and I'm a healthcare worker and now I have to get STD tested for AIDS, hep C, etc. Now he's having intermittent explosive psychosis from guilt of the affair 
and hearing voices, high-pitched frequency, and still protecting her. I was raised that families stick together, and we have a six-year-old daughter. He says he's trying to be honest to heal the relationship, but if you don't put it all on the table, how do you heal? Let me mention he contacted her twice after he promised he wouldn't. So, Terry, your thoughts on this letter? Well, I, I understand the pain that the writer is going through, and it's really important that she protect her daughter from some of her anguish that she's going through. She certainly can tell her daughter and mom and dad are going through a tough time, but try her best not to share too much with the daughter who's very young and very impressionable. I feel that the, really the only way to heal from infidelity is that the person who has betrayed their partner has to stop doing the behaviors that cause the person to feel betrayed. In other words, they stop. They have to stop the affair. Yes. They have, they have to stop the affair and they have to stop contacting the other person, take responsibility for their actions and actively work on repairing the damage done. So I would say that because her ex is having mental health issues, that has to be addressed first. I would recommend therapeutic help for that because that sounds pretty severe. And then if her husband is interested in repairing the relationship, they really should engage in couples counseling and he make the commitment to stop the affair and take responsibility for his harmful actions before they're going to be able to move on. Yeah, and I think that this person is crying out for help herself. And I think that it's very tempting when somebody is having a nervous breakdown and is running around acting out and everything to have all your attention on that person, particularly, you know, if they're having this explosive psychosis. And so all your action is trying to sort out this other person and you can't sort anybody else out. You've actually got to look after yourself and you've actually got to understand all of the stuff that's going on inside you. When you're on a little bit of a more even keel and you're feeling that your world isn't spinning round and round, it might be helpful to look at some of the messages that you've been given. Because what do you think of this phrase that family stick together? I think that it depends. I don't think divorce is easy, but it is necessary in some cases. And there's no evidence from any of the large studies, including mine, that getting a divorce has worse outcomes than staying together in a really unhappy or mistrustful relationship. So if you have high conflict or infidelity or your children are going to be harmed by you staying together as a couple, in many cases, divorce is a better choice. So we have to examine these messages that we've been given and say that they're not in many cases, based on facts. They're based on the mythology that we all have that couples should never separate. And that that's certainly not true. And I think it's really useful to examine the family mythology. Where do these myths come from? This idea that families stick together, I think it would be very good with your therapist to spend a couple of weeks actually saying, well, how many people in the family followed this? Where did this actually come from? that actually when you begin to unpack it, you'll discover it's an incredibly more complicated thing than this. Yeah. And you'll see who followed it, who didn't follow it, why the myth came up. And you can begin to put together something that's actually right for you rather than has been handed down through the generations. Because families stick together might have been true for your great-grandmother, but it might not be quite so relevant for you. And 
it is really useful to spend some time unpicking that. And what I'm very concerned about here is because there's so much drama that everybody's trying to feel better today, and that actually is making everything worse. And actually, just trying to slow this all down, look after yourself. And I think when you're in a better place, I think your husband will hopefully also have reached a better place because he's going to be getting his help too. And then you can begin to look at, you know, what are we going to do next? But at the moment, the world is spinning. And the only part of the world we can stop spinning is our own part of it. I think you need to think over and over again, what can I do to make myself feel better today? You know, And that might be going off and having a massage. It might be going off and having a walk in the park. It might just be shutting the door, <laughs> putting headphones on and having a very long bath. But you've really got to look after yourself you know, find a friend who will take your daughter for a couple of hours so that you just have some time to recover because you've been through a terrible shock and you really do have to look after yourself. Betrayal is very hard to recover from. Um, there are a lot of wounds that exist and people definitely need to practice self-care. I totally agree with that. So she needs counseling, but to help her husband, she needs to also set boundaries and encourage him to go for help because he definitely needs support. And then if they do decide they're going to give it a go, marriage counseling to figure out how to move forward beyond the infidelity. It is possible that they could heal from it, but it's not an easy fix. It's definitely a challenge. So how do you decide this question that I'm sure you must have been asked as many times as I am, is there hope for this marriage or not? How do you actually answer that question when you get asked it? I pretty much say what I said earlier. It, it depends on the person who is the betrayer, their willingness. I'm, I'm not just talking in infidelity. I'm talking as a, as a general kind of process because, you know, every couple, I think, reaches that point sometimes when they say to themselves, is there hope? Can this marriage be saved? Let's look at it in the big picture. In the big picture. How do we know? Because infidelity is a whole specialist section. Let's just look at the big picture. Can this marriage be saved? Well, I think the earlier you get therapy or counseling in the marriage, the better. And if you're having conflict, which is ongoing, and there's any kind of verbal abuse or a high negativity override, you need to stop the criticism, the contempt and defensiveness and stop withdrawing from each other and playing, you know, the roles of the distancer and the pursuer. A lot of the patterns that couples have, you need to acknowledge what's going on and make a commitment to improve your relationship. I don't think you will know that right away. I do believe that you should try marriage counseling for at least three to four months to see if there is hope of reducing the negativity and improving the positive quality of your relationship. That only happens over time with a skilled therapist who can really give you the tools to be able to do that. And here's a free tool now. Ask yourself, what can I do differently? You'll find it'll probably be a quite a short list in comparison with what can my partner do differently, which is about a 3,000-page list. And unfortunately, we tend to focus on the 3,000-page list rather than a little notelet about what we can do differently. But even if you just do one thing differently, that is going to be better. 
than uh, giving a list of things for your partners to do differently. That can change the dynamic in the relationship. I wrote an article for the Gottman Institute about the point that if you change your own behavior and stop focusing so much on your partner and dial down the criticism, your marriage can actually get a lot better. Thank you for being my witness today on The Meaningful Life. And we now need to turn to you. What makes your life meaningful? I really enjoy the relationships that I have with my friends. I have several close friends that I enjoy spending time with, my family, my children, my husband. I particularly enjoy spending time outdoors with just kayaking, hiking. I'm going skiing soon and reflecting with books about poetry and fiction and nonfiction really bring me joy. There's nothing like a Friday night movie or a good sort of media event to spark my interest. So a variety of different activities, but starting with self-care, you try to exercise every day and take time to really you know, be good to myself. It's terribly important to feed yourself. And I'm not just talking about food. You know, I can see your eyes light up and your voice gets more animated when you talk about kayaking. I can tell that that is something that you really enjoy, that outside stuff. And unfortunately, when we're stressed, what's the first thing we give up? Things we like. And we just double down and do more of the things we don't like. Not a recipe for a happy life or a meaningful life, really, is it? Good point. Terry, thank you very much for being with me today. This has been a fabulous to have a chance to talk face-to-face like this. The things we've been talking about will be on the show notes. The conversation, though, doesn't end here if you are a member of our supporters circle, because I'm going to share with Terry what I've learned today that I'm going to take away, and actually I'm going to start feeding to my clients, which she's going to talk to me about what she's got out of this conversation. And I'm going to ask her the three things that she knows to be true deep down. If you'd like to hear that conversation, here are some details. But Terry, thank you very much for now. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Andrew. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.